right. Well, we want to welcome everyone here tonight and those who will be viewing this via YouTube. This is lesson number 143 of Mind Brain Connections. What we're going to be dealing with tonight is the allegorical reality of Paul's religious ship in Acts chapter 27. And I want to go through this. I probably won't read all of the verses. I'll just comment uh, concerning the section of verses that we're looking at. But in Acts chapter 27, this was a ship that was carrying the religious dogmas of men. And we know that the scripture says that the religious dogmas of men make the word of God of none effect. So this vehicle that Paul the Apostle was on, plus some other passengers or some other criminals actually is what they were, prisoners, they were on the same ship that Paul the Apostle was on. Now, this ship represents duality, it represents religion, it represents the universal belief of good and evil, or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it represents Christ and us instead of Christ as us, it represents God and health, our Father and health, rather than Father as our health, so it represents all of the religious concepts that any of us have ever experienced. Now, the destination of this ship, and I'm going to jump ahead to chapter 28 of Acts, verse 1 says that they were escaped, then they knew, when they were escaped, then they knew that the island was called Melita. In other words, their destination was Melita. Now it's interesting that Melita means honey. So right away when we see the word honey, what I think of now is the destination was to experience subjectively the land flowing with milk and honey. And of course we've done a lot of teaching on that, how that when the energy fields are open, the energy begins to rise from the sacral area on up to the throat, to the, to the heart, the throat, and so forth. Then it activates the pineal, and the pineal produces a golden substance, colored substance, or oil. Then it also goes to the right and it activates the pituitary, which is a milky colored substance that it produces. And so what do we have there? We have the land, our bodies, the land flowing with milk and honey. So that was the destination of this ship. And as we know, when we read in Acts chapter 27, which we'll begin in verse 9 and read some of that, we know that this ship had to be completely destroyed and it's a panoramic view of what is happening to religion today. In other words, as the truth comes, the truth begins to swallow up the religiosity within us. As the truth, as the light is switched on, then it swallows up all of the darkness. So I want to begin by looking at verse 9 of Acts 27, and let's realize that this is a religious ship. It's going to be completely destroyed. Paul gives these prisoners a word that no life is going to be ended, but all of the ship is going to be destroyed. So all of religion is going to be destroyed. And what it says here in Acts 27, verse 9, when much time was spent, and when sailing was now dangerous, because, of course, there was a storm that came up, because the fast was already passed, Paul admonished them. Now, we're living in a time when much time has passed. In other words, under the Old Testament, it was known as the age of Aries. When Jesus was in his ministry for three and a half years, it was known as the age of Pisces, and that is the fish cut in half, or duality. 
And that is why when Jesus healed people, the healings were not, they, I say they were corrupted many times. That doesn't mean the healing itself was corrupted, but where the people were and their awareness was corrupted. There was duality. And it didn't bear fruit the remains. You know, they had to come back and, you know, get healed again. Those that, that were healed by Jesus, they ended up dying later on or getting sick later on. And so as it says here in Acts 27 verse 9, much time had passed, and I can say the same thing to us today. Much time had passed. We're not in the age of Aries. We're not in the age of Pisces. We have entered into the age of Aquarius, which is what? The age of enlightenment. So much time has passed. And in fact, what we need to realize is that our focus is not even, even though we say this is the age of Aquarius, we need to realize that our focus is not even linear time, but our focus is the eternal realm. We come to realize that we were in God, in pure spirit form from before the foundation. We see this in Ephesians 1, 4, 2 Timothy 1, 9. So, so our focus is not time, but our focus is the eternal realm. We are eternal beings. We're spirit slowed down to visibility. So we must realize here that Paul was one of the prisoners, so to speak, on a whole ship full of other prisoners on their way to Melita or on their way to experience the land flowing with milk and honey on their way to experience subjectively their completeness and their oneness that they've always had. Now the last part of verse 9 there in Acts 27 says that Paul had admonished these people. Now think about it this way. Paul was a Benjamite. The scriptures say Paul was a Benjamite. What does a Benjamite mean? He was a son of the right hand. So when he began to minister to these prisoners and tell them there's not going to be, you know, your lives are going to be spared, but there's going to be the complete destruction of the religious ship, when he was saying that, he was getting that from the right side, not the left side. Now, they could have looked just like Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. They could have looked, the storm came up, and oh, we're going to die in this storm, and things are looking pretty bad here. They could have been thinking from the left side, from the intellect, logic, reason, ego, and all of that, or been led by the five physical senses or their emotions. Imagine what your emotions could dictate to you while the storm has come up and you're on this ship and you have no idea what's going on. But we need to understand that Paul had a word from the right side. Paul the apostle began to speak to them about the ship that they were on. And then notice in verse 10, Paul says these words unto them. He said unto them, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage. Of course, he was speaking of the, of the ship, not their lives. Hurt and much damage, not only of the lading of the ship, but also of our lives. In other words, our lives are going to experience some fear. Our lives are going to cause us to realize the importance of focusing from the right side because of what's happening in the external realm. And of course, when we think about the fact that this is a religious ship, and he says, I perceive that this voyage is going to be with much hurt and damage, I right away think about what Paul the Apostles, or what Peter said, excuse me, what Peter said, and I think it's 2 Peter chapter 3, he talked about the fact that the first principles are going to melt with the fervent heat and a loud noise. It's like Paul said in Hebrews chapter 6, go on from the first principles from the ABCs of the gospel and go on into perfection which is maturity. So when we look at this religious ship we're going to see as we read on we're going to see that everything about religion and again this is a panoramic view 
of what is happening to religion today. And so he's encouraging them to just let all that religion be swallowed up by the fire of God's word or by the truth. Now, when I was in Ohio last weekend, I taught from the book of Revelation on Saturday. We had a meeting from 10 to 3 on Saturday. And I took, taught from the book of Revelation. And I taught specifically in Revelation chapter 16 about the vials. And in some places in Revelation, the vials are called the woes. They're called the plagues. And they're called the torments. But if you look in chapter 15, it says that they're marvelous. So as I shared with the people in Ohio, the plagues is what brought Israel out of Egypt, but the vials bring Egypt out of us. Mm -hmm. All of that lower thinking, all of the religion that this ship represents here. And then it said that it comes out, the vials come out of the wrath of God. Well, that sounds real scary, right? Mm -hmm. But wrath there is the Greek word orge, which means the passionate love of God. So all the plagues and all the vials that we read about in the book of Revelation, they're not things that are supposed to scare us, but they are things that are going to remove all that this ship represents in Acts chapter 27. Now in verse 11 of Acts 27, it says, Nevertheless, the centurion believed the master and the owner of the ship more than those things that were spoken by Paul. And that sounds, you know, a lot like today. There are many people... And that's changing, thank goodness, but there are many people that are not open to the things that we teach today. Why? Because it's diametrically opposed to the religious stuff that we were taught all of our lives. So I said that to say this, if you can hear just a little bit of this, be thankful. Be thankful, because know that the spirit within you, your Holy Spirit, is that which has opened this up to you. Because the majority of people today still don't hear. But thank God that's beginning to change. Now, verse 12 says of Acts 27, And because the haven was not commodious to winter in, the more part, the more part, advised to depart thence also, if by any means they might attain to Phoenice, and there to winter, which is an haven of Crete, and lieth toward the southwest, I love that, and the northwest. Now, notice where it says there, the more part, the more part advised to depart thence also, the more part is talking about the fact, and we, as we read this, I know that some of these words are kind of scrambled, and it's really, from the King James especially, it's kind of hard to read. And maybe if we look at other translations, it might be a little easier. But the more part here in verse 12 is talking about the fact that the majority of these prisoners on the ship wanted to turn back. They wanted to turn back, and, and that's the word where you see the more part advised to depart thence and go back, if by any means they might attend to Phoenice. Now, Phoenice actually means maturity. Thinking that if they turned back, the majority or the more part would turn back, they thought that they would be mature. In other words, we start our journey and we begin to come into some of these truths and we think, yeah, maybe I shouldn't be going in this direction. I'm going to go back to where I started thinking that that will bring maturity. Mm-hmm. But now notice what else it says which is an haven of Crete and lieth toward the southwest and northwest. Now, if I would have my chart here today, I would tell you that the southwest, we're talking about the left side, right? The southwest and the northwest is not what you want to be focusing on because the northwest would be 
the north part of the left side, which would be emotions. Remember, Dan, emotions on our chart that we made. And then the, the north part, excuse me, would be, would be Dan. The south part of the west side or the left side would be our five senses, the physical, or our emotions. And so when you look at this, you begin to see that these people, when they thought about the more part, thought about going back, what were they thinking out of? The northwest, the emotions, and the southwest, their five senses. So it's very clear there. So phanis, as I said, means the mature realm. It means the palm tree. And of course, a palm tree denotes subjectively our, or objectively our maturity or our completeness in Christ. And so the majority here, because of the fear and the emotions and because of the, the five senses, seeing things happening out here from the external, the more part or the majority wanted to turn back and go in the opposite direction. Like many today, when they start this journey of truth, they get a little scared sometimes and they want to turn back thinking, well, maybe that'll mature us. Just, you know, maybe we're going in the wrong direction. And this is exactly what these people were going through. And when we think about it in the Song of Solomon, remember the king called the Shulamite a palm tree. And also he said of her, there's no spot in thee. So objectively he was saying, you don't have any spots in you, and you are objectively complete and mature. Not subjectively, but objectively. And of course we know everyone in the world today objectively is one, has never been separate. We know that there's no spot in them objectively. But what we want to experience and what these prisoners, including Paul, wanted to experience on this ship was to get to Melita to where they could subjectively experience the having no spots, to where they could subjectively experience the completeness that they knew that they were objectively. Now, in verse 12 it says, And there to winter, which is an haven of Crete. Now let me go back to that a little bit more. The last part there, verse 12, and to Haven, which is an haven of Crete, and lieth toward the southwest and the northwest. Now I explained to you what the southwest and the northwest was. It's from the left side or from the west. So here when you see the word Crete, guess what it means? It means fleshly. So if we're going to be led on this ship and this storm is scaring us out of fear, we're tempted to think out of our emotions, the northwest, tempted to think out of our the southwest part, which is what? The five senses or what we can see. That would mean that we have become, once again, in our awareness, fleshly. See, and that's what the word Crete means there. But it will never bring you, if you want to go back to the flesh once you've started the journey of the truth, and you begin to think out of the northwest, the southwest, what is that but Crete or the flesh? So we, as we continue on with this story, we can see that probably each and every one of us have been tempted at some time or challenged at some time in our life once we've started receiving the truth to desire to go back because we're thinking out of the northwest or the left side or the southwest of the left side. Now, look at verse 13. And when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, Loosing thence, they sailed close by Crete. And again, as I said, that means simply the fleshly realm. That means simply that they really were in question and really being challenged by what was going on, even though Paul the Apostle spoke from the 
right side and said, none of you are going to be killed, none of you are going to die here, but the, the ship is going to be completely destroyed. Verse 14 says, but not long after there, and I love this, there arose a tempestuous wind called Herakadon. So they're having this huge storm. They decided they wanted to go back to the flesh. They got to the northwest or the southwest. They wanted to go back to the flesh. They're fearful of what the truth is that Paul is revealing to them. And so again in verse 14, not long after there arose a tempestuous wind called Arachidon. Guess what Arachidon means? It means a strong wind from the east. A strong wind from the east. That's Judah. That's the right side. That's the mind of Christ. That's the new day dawning in their consciousness. That's the new day. That's the experience. That's slipping into the Christ mind. Now, I talk a lot about slipping into the Christ mind, but you know what? Wouldn't it be better to stay in the Christ mind? You never have to slip into the Christ mind? Just to stay on the right side. And continually, when you're challenged by things from the left side, continually, it'd be like hitting a brick wall. It doesn't affect you whatsoever. And I believe that's what it meant where it said, what Paul the Apostle said, he was content in whatever state he found himself in. The word content there means he was unaffected by anything from the outside. So this, this wind refers to what? The, the, the strong wind from the east refers to our Holy Spirit, to our Christ mind, to the realm of spirit. Something began to blow contrary to the storm that was happening in the external realm. Something began to blow contrary to the truth that was being revealed, and it came from the east side. It came from the dawning of the new day in their consciousness. Now, I could take you to Acts or, or to Psalm 107, and I could read, I'm not going to go there, but verses 23 through 30 talk about the fact, let me read verse 27. They reel, talking about mankind, reeling to and fro and staggering like a drunken man and are at their wits end. What is that talking about? That's talking about people that finally come to the place to where they're at their wits end where religion is concerned. And it talks about the sea there in Psalm 107. And the sea actually represents the majority of people that are still in religion. In fact, Isaiah said it this way, the wicked are as the troubled sea. They're as the troubled sea. So what it's talking about there in Psalm 107, 23 through 30 is the religion of man comes to its wit's end. It eventually comes to its wit's end. People come to the end of themselves and they realize the religiosity from the west side is just not working whatsoever for them. Who was it, Dr. Bill, uh, or Dr. Phil? <laughs> Dr. Phil used to say, how's that working for you? You know, that's the question today. How's religion working for us? Well, it's not working at all. You may get a little fruit here and there, but it's not, uh, you know, it's short-lived. It's not going to, it's not fruit that remains. Now, back to Acts 27, verse 15 says, And when the ship was caught and could not bear up into the wind, we let her drive. In other words, when this wind from the east came, and the ship could not, it says, when the ship was caught and could not bear up into the wind, we let her drive. What is that talking about? That's just simply talking about when that east wind, that truth comes, you need to just automatically let go of all of that that has to do with the religious ship and just let her drive. Just let the truth come in. Let the truth work within your life. Verse 16 says, And running under a certain 
island, which is called Claudia. We had much work to come by the boat. Now, in verse 16, notice there, running under a certain island called Claudia. Claudia means lame. Remember when Jacob was wrestling with the message, with the word, and he was struck in his hip, and he walked with a limp from that point on. And I used to say, don't trust anyone that doesn't walk with a limp. Meaning, don't trust anyone that thinks out of the fleshly side, that thinks out of the emotions. or you know. So, so this lame, this, this Claudia here means lame. In other words, if one resists that east wind of Eurachidon that we just read about, they're not going to be able to walk in the truth of who they have always been objectively. So we have to become lame to the religiosity and stop walking in the religiosity. Now, in verse 17, they begin to realize that they need to lighten the ship up a little bit. It's gone down. Paul prophesied to them, it's going to be destroyed, but your lives are going to be spared. So they realize that this, this storm is, is such a tremendous storm, they need to throw some things off of the ship to lighten the ship. And they started with the lighter things, and then later on, the heavier things. But let me read that in verse 17. Which, when they had taken up, they used helps, undergirding the ship, and fearing lest they should fall into the quicksands, they strake sail, and so were driven. So notice it says that they used helps to undergird, undergird the ship. In other words, they were trying to use anything that they could to keep their religious system going which was, is exactly what many are doing today. You know, looking for good ideas and, you know, gimmicks galore to keep our religious ship afloat. Yep. People are still doing that. So then in, the, in this verse, verse 17, they began to, where it says, strike sail. That means, strike sail, when you look that up in the Greek, it means that they, they had light, little lifeboats on this ship. And so what they decided to do is get into these little life ships to try to save their religious system there. And you see, that's what people do today. They, you know, the, let me just say it this way. The religious system does not have very, uh, how should I say that? The religious system today does not have a very bright future. Let me say it that way. Because it's going down. It is being swallowed up. And later on, we'll find out that all were there to see the religious ship destroyed. Same way with today. This is a panoramic view of, of this religious ship. It represents a vehicle which is full of religiosity. And later on, it says that all the men were there to see this religious ship go under. Verse 18, And we being exceedingly tossed with a tempest, the next day they lightened the ship. Now, how does religion lighten their religious ship? Well, to lighten the religious ship, I could imagine, in, in, in my awareness, I could imagine, they, throw, they begin to throw things like, out like eternal conscious torment. Right. They begin to throw things out like we were born and we came here in Adam. They begin to throw things out, and, and it's interesting that they unload the heavier stuff first. Kind of the heavy reverie, if you will. They unload all of that stuff because they were believing, you see, in eternal conscious torment. They were believing that we came here in Adam as the majority of Christians do today. So they're unloading from the ship, 
as it says there, they're unloading the heavier stuff first, and then they go to the, in verse 19, the lighter stuff, and it's called the tackling. It says the third day we cast out with our own hands the tackling of the ship. So the tackling here denotes that the little parts of the ship, first it was the heavier things, like the heavy revy, and now it's the little lighter beliefs that they begin to get rid of. And in Isaiah, and I'm not going to go there, but Isaiah 33, verses 24, or 21 through 24, it talks about, let me just read verse 23, because it uses the word tacklings. It says, thy tacklings are loosed. They could not well strengthen their mast. They could not spread the sail. Then is the prey of a great spoil divided. The lame take the prey. The lame take the prey. Those that are lame where religiosity is concerned, they take the great prey. And what is the great prey? But they subjectively experience what has always been true about them objectively. And it goes on to say, verse 24, The inhabitants shall not say, I am sick. The people that dwell therein shall know that they're forgiven of their iniquity. And of course, I could go into that, how God didn't even need to forgive us because he was never offended in the first place. When we see forgiveness in the New Testament, it's about forgiving ourselves and forgiving people. So in other words, in Isaiah 33, this is a people or a picture of a people who when they lose their religion, the tacklings or the religious ideas of how to flow with the east wind began to be swallowed up. Arachidon, the strong wind from the east, begins to get rid of all of these religious ideas and concepts of man, they become lame to that, and then they take the great prey, the great prey being, now I'm really experiencing what has been true about me objectively all along. And I think that's very interesting there in Isaiah chapter 33, where it talks about those being lame and the tacklings and taking the great prey which is walking in the nowness and the isness, walking in subject. See, because I think it's a real sad commentary when people are just satisfied with just simply living in what's true of them objectively. Why don't we want to walk in this subjectively? Why don't we want to experience this? Now look at verse 20 of Acts 27. It says, And when neither sun nor stars in many days appeared, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope that we should be saved was then taken away. And what, what I hear in this, the sun and the stars were not shining. What I hear in that is there's no popular TV evangelist going to, no TV star is going to be able to cause you to experience the subjective experience. What we have heard in religion is not going to bring us to the place to where we experience subjectively and walk in what they called the great prey back in Isaiah. But it has to be as we turn within. It has to be as we do the meditation. It has to be as we go into the closet and shut the appearance room off. It has to do, you know, as we do those things that Jesus told us to do, that's what's going to bring us into this place to where we begin to really walk subjectively in that which is true about us. See, and a lot of people are just satisfied with the objective reality and their idea is, well, one day the rapture is going to take place, and then all of a sudden we'll be able to experience and walk in the subjective experience of this. And that's just not the way it's going to happen. Now listen to verse 21. But after long abstinence, Paul stood forth in the midst of them and said, Sirs, ye should have hearkened unto me. Like, why didn't you listen to me? In other words, you should have hearkened unto me 
and not have loosed from Crete, and to have gained this harm and loss. So, in other words, after a long abstinence of food, Paul begins to give them some real spiritual food. And in essence, he said, I could have told you that if you go so far, journey so far in this truth and this light that is coming, and you desire to draw from the northwest and the southwest or from the left side, if you desire that, thinking it's going to bring maturity, and instead they were going back to Crete, which was the fleshly way of thinking, he said, I could have told you you were going to come into more trouble. That's really what he's saying there. So Melita is then simply experiencing, as I've said, the fullness of what has always been true about us. Now, verse 22 says, And now I exhort you to be of good cheer, for there shall be no loss of any man's life among you, but of the ship. In other words, everything is okay except your religiosity. Your religion is not going to survive, but the ship is not going to make it. Because the ship represents the religious ship. Your lives are going to be spared, but this ship is going down. Because it's all your religiosity and your false concepts and so forth. Verse 23, For there stood by me, Paul is saying, This night the angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve. Now, the word night there, where it says, For there stood by me this night. The word night, how many remember in Genesis, the evening and the morning are the first day? So what the night means is when spirit begins to speak, when the strong wind from the east of Arachidon begins to blow in here on this ship, when that begins to happen, you begin to receive revelation of the very things that you did not know of before. That's what the night represents. You were in darkness, in other words, concerning the truth that is being revealed to you. That's all it means. For there stood by me this night an angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve. In other words, the truth was being revealed that was not previously being revealed to them. So that's why it says, in the night. Now, there's a scripture that I use quite often in Psalm 46.6, which says, When he utters his voice, the earth melts. When he utters spirit from the east side, this wind of the Rockadon, this strong wind, when he utters his voice, the earth melts. The religious concepts are swallowed up and destroyed, but the, the, all of the earthly things that we've held to in our awareness is destroyed, but we are saved, and we experience walking in that subjective reality. Verse 24, saying, Fear not, Paul, thou must be brought before seizure. In other words, Paul, this is what this voice was saying within Paul, the I amness in Paul, don't fear whatsoever because you know you have to appear before Caesar. And lo, God hath given thee all of them that sail with thee. So Paul, this is where Paul heard from the Christ mind of the right side, the east, the strong wind of the east. Paul heard, you have to appear before Caesar. And Paul already knew that. So he was reminding him and encouraging him that he was going to have to make this journey and that he was not going to be harmed in any way. The only thing that was going to be harmed on the other prisoners is simply the religion. So Paul heard that word. And, and what I heard in that, as I began to teach this in Ohio last weekend, every person that we have ever ministered to is going to subjectively experience it. And that's what, that's what Spirit was telling Paul. All that were with you are going to be saved. So everyone that we've ever ministered to 
are going to come to the subjective experience. Whether it happens in this life or later on, it's going to happen. And that's a very encouraging thing for us to hear. So they're all going to experience the land of milk and honey, either here or there. They're all going to experience it. Now look at verse 25. Paul says, Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer, for I believe God, that it shall be even as it was told me. And isn't it interesting that we read in verse 11 where it said that the master and the centurion believe the owner of the ship rather than believing what Paul said. Verse 26, Howbeit we must be cast upon a certain island, and that island, as I stated when I began, is Melita, which again means the land flowing with milk and honey. It's the age of Aquarius. Because you know what? Melita also means enlightenment. So all of our religion is going to be trashed and we're going to subjectively, subjectively experience the age of Aquarius or the age of enlightenment. And we're also going to understand the constellations and see that all the constellations represent the light, the sun, moon, and stars, remember, are signs pointing to what? Pointing to this age of Aquarius or this age of enlightenment that we're living in today. Verse 27, but when the 14th night was come, as we were driven up and down in Adria, about midnight, the shipmen deemed that they drew near to some country. Now, Adria, or Adria, A-D-R-I-A, simply means wood, and it speaks of humanity. Now, let me say something about humanity, because we have a lot of people that just believe that they're just humans, meaning hewed down man. But I like to say it this way. If we have to use the word human, I see it spelled as H-U-E, man. And hue speaks of light. It speaks of color, but it speaks of light as well. We're light beings. We're the salt of the earth. We're the light of the world. We're spirits slowed down to visibility. And as this happens in this age of Aquarius, what's going to happen is we're going to be speeded back up. We're going to be speeded back up. You know, the Judah, remember the tribe of Judah had 186,400 in their tribe, which is the constant speed of light. So let me say this. Let me also say this. We are more than just humankind here. We know we're not. We know that we are not hewed down man, but we are spirits slowed down to visibility or humankind, human. H-U-E, men. That See, the scripture talks about we are, it doesn't say we're human beings, because remember Paul said, you act like men. What's wrong with you? He told that to the Corinthians. Why are you acting like mere men? So we're not mere men. We're not hewed down man as a human, but we are human and women. We are the earthen vessels out of which flows the light or flows Christ out of our lives, you see. So this is what this Adria, let me read that again. But when the 14th night was come, as we were driven up and down in Adria about midnight, the shipmen deemed that they drew near to some country which was called Adria. Now, let me read verses 28 through 30, 28 through 30 of Acts 27. And it says there, and sounded and found it 20 fathoms, and when they had gone a little further, they sounded again and found it fifteen phantoms. Then fearing lest we should have fallen upon rocks, they cast four anchors out of the stern and wished for the day. 
and and a shipman and as the shipman were about to flee out of the ship when they had let down the boat into the sea under color as though they would have cast anchors out of the foreship so so because they knew that the ship was being destroyed they waited for and they desired to take these lifeboats and throw them out in verse 30 there in other words they wanted to hang on for dear life to anything they could hang on to and that's the same way today in religiosity they're trying to hang on whatever they can hang on to programs and gimmicks galore to do what to spare the religious system but the ship's going down the ship is going down verse 31 paul said to the centurion and the and the soldiers except these abide in the ship you cannot be saved there were some that you know they they really wanted to throw some of those prisoners off overboard to lighten things and so paul said no no man's life is going to be destroyed here only the ship is going to be destroyed but let me read verse 31 because this is very interesting in the amplified the amplified says of verse 31 and let me read it first in the king james paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers except these abide in the ship ye cannot be saved now listen to the amplified some of them thought they were going to escape secretly in a secret rapture that's what they thought and isn't that like it is today in religiosity oh yes we know we're complete we know we're one some of them say some don't say that but we know that we're you know one in christ and have never been separate that's our objective position in christ but one day after the glorious rapture we're going to walk in this and experience it subjectively so that's what verse 31 says some of them thought they were going to escape secretly like a rapture like a rapture but listen everyone is going to see the end of religion and we'll see this as we, we, we go on here now look at verses 32 and 33 then the soldiers cut off the ropes of the boat and let her fall off verse 33 and while the day was come on Paul besought them all to take meat, saying, This day is the fourteenth day that you have tarried, and continued fasting, not having taken nothing. Now, my question was when I read this, what do you mean? They threw everything overboard. There was no meat or drink, literally. So what was Paul talking about allegorically? He was talking about the fact that they hadn't been really digesting the spiritual food he was giving them. So now I'm going to give you some real foods, some spiritual food. So it says there that he besought, Paul besought them all to take meat. In other words, they had been fasting from the truth. You know, I think it was in Amos, it says that there's going to come a famine for the word. They weren't fasting on the truth. They weren't even listening to what Paul the apostle was saying. And then Paul pops up in verse 33 and says, you all need to take some meat. You all need to take some meat. And of course we know that as a babe in Christ, we partake of milk. And then bread and then meat strong meat hebrews 5 14 belongs to those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil when we come to understand that even external good on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is death you see so this is what this is saying here now look at verse 34 wherefore i pray you to take some meat for this is for your health for there shall not an hair fall from the head of any one of you. So it's, it's the meat of the word that reveals the truth as the Father being our health as us. But notice he says, 
not a hair is going to fall from the head of you. Now, if you study the word hair, you find out that it means in the Greek to tend or to take care of. Like we're going to take care of our hair. But what was told to Adam is he was to tend the garden and keep the garden. So hair, he says, there's not a hair going to fall from the head of you. That's not talking about losing your hair on your head. It's not talking about that whatsoever. He's saying you need to take some meat and then learn to tend to the garden and keep the garden. Remember the scripture in Matthew that says that God knows the very numbers of hairs on our head. And I've taught that here before. The word numbered is not God knows if you've got 50 million hairs on the top of your head. That's not what it is at all. It means to expiate. That's what, that's what the word numbers means, where it says that he knows the very number of hairs upon our head. And it means to expiate. Numbered means to expiate, which means that our awareness has been atoned for. Now, how has our awareness been atoned for? Well, in Jesus' death, he exposed the lies that we embraced of religiosity. In his resurrection, he revealed the truth. And we're to keep that in the forefront. We're to keep the garden. We're to keep it. How do we keep it? Well, by drawing from the right side, as opposed to drawing from the left side. Now, verses 35 through 37. And when he had thus spoken, he took bread, he gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. Now, all is used three times. And what I have found out is when you look at the word all, this is a big revelation right here. All means all. So three times it says all. When he had thus spoken, he took bread, he gave to God in the presence of them all, number one. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. They were all of good cheer, and they also took up some meat, and we were in all, number three, in the ship, 203 score and 16 souls. So this was not literal bread like in communion, literal, you know, like wine and bread or grapefruit juice and bread. This was not literal communion. This was the meat of the word, and they were to all partake of it, and since all is all, it denotes that all were involved in salvation from before the foundation of the world. That's what it's talking about there. All were involved. And not only that, as you read on here, you find that all are going to see the destruction of this religious ship. All are going to see it going down. Verse 38, And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and cast out the wheat into the sea. Now, the wheat refers to wisdom, but wheat also refers to the death of Jesus Christ. When he was hung on the cross, a societal death, and he was hung on the cross by mankind because they didn't agree with you know, his philosophy. And, and so the wheat here, as it says, let me read that again, and cast out the wheat into the sea. Now, what is the sea? Isaiah said the wicked are the troubled sea. And wicked just means people that don't live out of the right side. So it was cast into the sea. It's like the millstone in Revelation that's cast into the sea, and it destroys Babylon, which means confusion by mixture. And then in verse 39, And when it was day, they knew not the land, but they discovered a certain creek with a shore, into the which they were minded, if it were possible, to thrust in the ship. Now, this creek here that is talking about with the shore was a brand new place. So what does this mean when it talks about the wheat and the sea? It's talking about the fact that the death of Christ that exposed the religion that we embraced, that's what it's talking about. Notice what it says there. 
The religious lies, it says it brought them to a creek with a shore. In other words, it just simply brought them to a new place. Understanding the proper understanding of the death, that it exposed the lies we embrace, it exposed this religious ship and what was in it, and the resurrection is what reveals the truth to us that brings you to a new place. And remember, Joshua said, you've come to a place that you have never passed before. And I want to declare to us tonight, we have come to a place that we have never walked in before. We've never passed this way before, as Joshua said it. And it's this day. It's this age of Aquarius. And then it goes on in verses 40 through 43. I almost finished here. And it says, And when they had taken up the anchors, they committed themselves unto the sea, and loosed the rudder bands, and hoisted up the mainsail to the wind, and made toward shore. And falling into a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground, and the fourth part stuck fast and remained unmovable, but the hinder part was broken with the violence of the waves. Verse 42, And the soldiers' counsel was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim out and escape. But the centurion, willing to save Paul, and because they saved Paul, Paul gave the admonition, do not kill anyone. Because everyone has got to see this religious ship going down. That's good. He didn't want any of them killed. Now, let me just fast forward to chapter 28. In chapter 28, they get out of the little lifeboats that they were in, and they... Paul builds a fire. Remember the fire that he built? He builds this fire with the wood of the religious ship and some of the lifeboats. And what happens? Out of the religion that was being burnt up comes a viper. And it bites Paul. And he, he believes the truth. He believes there's only one power. He certainly knows that, as it says in Revelation... Babylon is destroyed, is destroyed. It says it twice. He certainly understands that Babylon is destroyed, which is what? Confusion by mixture. And he knew that that viper that came out of that fire came out of religion. And so he should have died in a few minutes, and he shakes that thing off, and that's the end of it. But here's the thing. He, he, is, he is connecting this little incident when, when the viper came out and bite, you know, bit Paul in the hand. That is an allegorical reality of what religion is. It's the devil. It's a viper. It's something that has no power. And the proof is in the pudding. When he shakes that viper off, it's, good. it's over with. It's over with. And that's how he associates, allegorically, religion with a viper or religion with the devil. See, it's our mindset. It's our awareness that can be the devil. Not some imp out here that all religion is all scared about and thinking has power. And then as you read on in chapter 28, it talks about a great rain that occurs. And this great rain simply means a great teaching. And in chapter 28, 31, it says, The preaching of the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence... No man forbidding him. Talking about Paul. No man forbidding him. Well, I guess not after seeing all that. Who would forbid Paul after seeing all that took place on this religious ship? And then in verse 30, it says that Paul had his own hired house. And it says, and he dwelt there two whole years in his own hired house and received all that came unto him. In other words, he was experiencing not a visitation, but a habitation. Mm. What was Paul doing here in his own hired house? He was dwelling on the inside. He had 
to the experience of the subjective rather than focusing upon the objective reality. He came to the subjective experience of walking in this. And that's exactly what he did on this ship. He kept telling them, no, you know, your lives are going to be spared, but this old ship's going down. This religious ship is going down. So this is the allegorical reality of Acts chapter 27 and the beginning of chapter 28. Religion has no power. Revelation, I think it's maybe 19, I'm not even sure what chapter it is, says, it says there that Babylon, which is confusion by mixture, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And Paul knew that. Paul understood that. And so he had a great word for these people. And I, I like that verse that says all three times, meaning every person, all are going to see the destruction of the religious ship. All are going to know it, and all are going to see it. If not in this life, at some point, they will see it. So, Father, we just thank you for your word, your spirit that quickens and conceives these words to our heart awareness. Thank you for the love. Thank you for the grace. Thank you for our spirit. Thank you for all that you've done through Jesus. We pray in your name. Thank you for the wisdom. Thank you for the understanding. Thank you that we understand these truths in this hour, in this age of Aquarius. And we're beginning to subjectively walk them out. Amen. 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 Amen.